Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man, him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had, been, she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail to tell me, for me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, 
were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Good morning. It's really a great joy to be with you, and uh, good to see dear friends like Scotty and Rob and Lisa and Paige and her husband earlier, and all sorts of very dear friends here. It's just a joy to worship with you. Um, I just appreciate Paul so much and the way he led us. It's a joy to see him too. So thank you, Carter and Paul and Scotty and the elders and everyone for inviting me uh, to preach here this morning. It really is a great privilege. Now, recently, like many, many other believers, I've been reflecting on the Reformation 500 years ago and the issues that, for our blessing ever since, the Reformation stressed the centrality of the scriptures, the, our need to absolutely depend on Christ, you know, the wonderful grace of God, and above all, faith, justification through faith. Now today, I want to focus our attention on faith, which of course is why we had this long passage from the book of Hebrews. There's so much to take in there, so I encourage you to, to go home and read it this afternoon again and uh, take some more of it in. So, as we begin to think about faith, would you please pray with me that God would open our hearts. Heavenly Father, we offer ourselves to you, and we thank you that you have given yourself to us in Jesus. We pray now you'll give us your spirit and open our hearts that we may listen uh, and be ready to learn, uh, soften our hearts, teach us, we pray. Uh, Lord, may the words that I speak and the thoughts of every one of our hearts be pleasing to you because of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Now, as you think about this passage from the book of Hebrews, I obviously can't expand the whole passage. We'd be here till this evening, and I'm sure you wouldn't stay. So, uh, But uh, just a couple of images to help us think about it. Uh, for years, and Scotty referred to this, uh, my wife and I uh, worked 
uh, with the Schaeffers in the Brie, first in Switzerland and then in England. In fact, we met there. I was indeed Edith Schaeffer's cook, which was how I met my wife, and she was Francis Schaeffer's secretary, typing up his letters and his first books that were published. And it was wonderful to work for Edith. And Edith used to have a prayer meeting each morning in the house for the people who are working there, which is, in God's wonderful kindness, how I met my wife about 50 years ago. And we got engaged 50 years ago in October, just a month after we met, and then we got married in December. So we're just going to celebrate our golden wedding, which is a, a wonderful, wonderful thing. And uh, life has been good, and God has been good, and my wife has been very gracious to put up with me uh, for 50 years, which is a, a very great privilege. But Edith used to often talk about this passage in Hebrews chapter 11. And Edith, Edith loved to use pictures. And the picture that she used to think about all these people of God from the Garden of Eden, as Scotty said, right up till the coming of Christ. The picture she used was of God's portrait gallery. Now, she didn't imagine God as having this gallery in heaven with pictures hung on the walls. What she meant by that was this was a gallery with people in it, you know, living people who are alive in the presence of God, all the way back to Abel and right up through all the people mentioned in this passage, some of whom are named for us, some of us not named. And she said, there in heaven, God has this gallery, and there are these people there, some of whom had very difficult lives, endured all kinds of troubles and disasters, suffering of one kind and another, and yet they remained faithful. And there God has them as like his trophies, these people there in the kingdom. And also, there are lots of people there where God answered their prayers and delivered them in all kinds of wonderful ways. And they're also in God's portrait gallery. And they're there as a kind of challenge to us as we face all the different issues we deal with day by day in our lives of joy and of sorrow, of trouble and of happiness. Now, Hebrews, of course, doesn't use that image of a portrait gallery. Instead, it uses the image of a stadium. You know, we can imagine an enormous football stadium, though this, of course, is very much bigger because they're are millions and millions of believers who lived during those years before the coming of Christ. So this is a big stadium. And all these people are there up in the stands in that stadium because they've already run the race down in the stadium, the race of faith. Now it's our turn. We are in that stadium, not up in the stands, but we are down in the stadium running the race of faith. And God is calling us to trust him in all the different things that happen to us in our lives. Now, as we think about Christians, this passage tells us about believers in the Old Testament before Jesus' coming, but now for 2,000 years, there have been people trusting in Jesus. So that is a, a huge portrait gallery getting bigger and bigger all the time. In the earth right now, there are over a billion people who truly believe in Jesus, not nominal Christians, the people who have put their trust in him. And I don't know about you, but I'm not a history teacher, but I love history. And I like to think about 
Christians at different points of history who I would love to have met and to have had the privilege of watching their faith, their lives of faith, in that stadium. For example, one of my favorite poets is John Donne, D-O-N-N-E, who lived in the early 1600s. And he was also a preacher. You know, the king asked him to serve as the preacher of St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And he was the greatest preacher of his day. And you can read some of his sermons. We all use words that he made up for his sermons and expressions. He was a great preacher and a great poet. And I would have loved to be able to go to St. Paul's Cathedral and listen to him preaching on a Sunday. People said about him, people who became believers through his preaching, that when he preached, he was often weeping. Weeping for his own sins, more than anything else, and also for the sins of his congregation. It would be wonderful to have heard him preaching. And it's also said that from time to time, John Donne would have breakfast with William Shakespeare, because this was the height of Shakespeare's life as the greatest playwright there's ever been, and Shakespeare also was a Christian. And I wish I could have gone into the restaurant and sat at the next table and listened to Shakespeare and John Donne speaking about their faith, about their love for Jesus. Or if I was a little bit older, I'm 72 now and still teaching full time in, at Covenant in St. Louis, but if I were just a little bit older, maybe five or ten years older, and I had gone up to be a student at Oxford or Cambridge in England, oh, I would have had the privilege of hearing C.S. Lewis give his lectures at the university. And he was a great teacher. He was the greatest teacher at the, I, both of those universities, first Oxford, then Cambridge, when he taught. I have friends who are a bit older than me who heard him, and they said every time you went to a lecture with Lewis teaching at the university, all kinds of other people would come. People would be hanging in the windows, you know, back against the walls, out of the door, you know, because he was such a good teacher. And then I wish I could have gone to the pub he used to have lunch with in the Eagland, the Eagland Child in Oxford and maybe sit at the next table while he and Tolkien were reading their stories to each other, the things that they were writing and sharing their faith together. Now, but as you think about those people, each of them, John Donne, C.S. Lewis, they experienced wonderful joys. Your God served them and cared for them and did wonderful things for them and made them a very great blessing to other people. But they also endured great sorrows. John Donne lost three of his children shortly after birth. And he lost his beloved wife, Anne, in childbirth, and both she and the baby died. He experienced great sorrow. Of C.S. Lewis, you know, in his 50s, finally fell in love. And he married Joy when she was dying of cancer. You know, cancer was riddling her whole body. 
just had a few days to live. And they got married on her deathbed in hospital. But then God answered his prayers. And miraculously, she was healed. And they had two blissfully happy years together. And then her cancer returned, and she died very rapidly. Like you and me, John Donne experienced both joy and sorrow, and so did C.S. Lewis. Now, all of us can identify with both the people who had wonderful answers to their prayers in Hebrews 11, and the people who experienced great sorrows. Just a few weeks ago, the students at the seminary asked me to do a lunch on issues at the end of life. And I decided the best way to approach that was just to tell some personal stories. As I think about my wife, Vicki, and myself, and our family, our extended family, even our close family, I was able to tell eight stories of awful trials at the end of life. Of cancer, of Alzheimer's, of Lou Gehrig's disease, and how these members of our family you know, endured with faith through those tough times. But if the students had asked me to tell about great joys in our family, I'd have had lots of stories of those to tell too. And all of us are like this. You know, our lives here in this world are a mixture of joy and sorrow. And sometimes they're just bound up together. I think of just one of my sisters-in-law, Melody. She was a brilliant woman. You know, the head of her class as a student in college. She went on to become a dermatologist. She was so good at it, they offered her millions of dollars to come and work in Hollywood, stitching up aging starlets to improve their looks. And she just said no. She wanted to actually serve people who were really in need. That's what she always did. She turned all that money down. But she got Lou Gehrig's disease when she was in her 50s. And her mother had died of it and had been very bitter and angry and resentful. And when Melody got Lou Gehrig's disease, and instead of starting in her fingers and toes and proceeding slowly into the center of her being, hers started right inside in her lungs. So it went much more quickly. And when she was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's, she said, you know, please pray for me, but I, w I won't do what my mother did, but I will continue to be cheerful and to trust the Lord and just to love him and be joyful. You when know, God answered her prayers for herself, and he answered our prayers for her. And the last two years of her life, as the disease proceeded very rapidly, were really the happiest time of her whole life. They were the happiest time of her marriage to my brother-in-law. They were really joyful during those times. And at first, even when she was having a hard time using her hands, she just she didn't even think about her own needs. She kept trying to serve people. You know, she'd look around the church and she'd see people she thought were needy. And she'd bake for them and do all sorts of things for them. And 
you know, try to serve them in whatever way she could. And of course, very rapidly, she couldn't do those kind of things. But then she prayed for people. And she was so cheerful when people would come and see, see her to try to be a blessing to her. She was a blessing to them because of the joy of her spirit. And as the disease progressed, you know, she couldn't use her hands at all, and she called them flopsy and mopsy because they just wouldn't do anything she wanted them to do. And she and her husband, Jim, would just laugh hysterically as he cared for her because she couldn't help him in any way. She was just totally dependent on him. And instead of just resenting that and struggling with it, she'd just laugh. It was just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And of course, as it progressed, she found it impossible to eat. You know, you'd pour a glass of water down your throat, you drown, because no muscles are working. So eating was very difficult. The last few months, she just ate smoothies very slowly. And she couldn't speak at all, of course. So she would communicate you know, by typing on a keyboard just so slowly and she'd be slowly dragging her fingers across the keyboard at the end just maybe taking an hour to write two or three sentences in a note to her husband or her children or her brother-in-law me you know, the last note she wrote to me was about three weeks or so before she died she and it must have taken her at least an hour to write it she wrote, Jerem, when will I get my glorified body? But she was joyful to the very end. And I had the privilege, of course, of answering that letter and then of preaching at her funeral. Now, as we think about faith, how, how will we cope with the pressures that we're going to face, the challenges that God promises us will come into our lives. Paul went round and taught all the new Christians through much tribulation. We're going to enter the kingdom of God. That's the way it is. That's what God promises in his word. Life is going to be difficult in this fallen world. Now, how will we endure through those tribulations and sorrows and challenges which will most certainly come our way? And also, how will we endure when God showers us with blessings because it's easy to forget him and just start trusting the gifts he gives us rather than trusting the Lord himself. So what is faith really made up of? How do we think about faith biblically? I want to make four very simple points. Number one, you know, faith, first of all, is simply being convinced that there's a God, that God exists and that he's the creator of this world. That's the first thing, that as we look around at this amazing, this beautiful world in which we live, as we look at the night sky, those billions and billions and billions of stars out there, this universe that is so vast, of which we're just a tiny bit, you know, this is made by a creator. As we enjoy the world immediately around us. In St. Louis this year, we've had the most spectacularly beautiful fall, I remember. It came months late, but it was just unbelievable. Oranges and reds and golds and bronze and just 
unbelievable. I, I mean, I, I would drive through it, and I, it would make me just weep. It was so lovely. If we look at the world around us, if we look at human life, and you think about the things that that you treasure, that you cherish, you know, your love in marriage, your delight in your children, your, the appreciation of your friends, of the gifts God has given you to be creative, to serve other people, of the moral passion you have, of the wonder of being a human person made in the image of God. You know, God calls us to respond by believing that he is. That's the first element of faith. I believe in God, the creator of heaven and earth, and of me and you. The second is that God calls us to listen to what he's told us about himself and believe him and trust him. I love what Paul said at the beginning of the service about all the things out there that are so cynical. We live in a very cynical society. I tell our students all the time, I hope you understand how cynical your hearts have become in this culture. But when we listen to God, we're not to be cynical. We're to trust what he's told us about himself, that he is indeed the God who is holy, as we sang, the God who is righteous, who is genuinely good, and we're to believe that no matter what happens in this broken world where people have rebelled against him, that God calls us to acknowledge that he is indeed good and to seek him with our whole being. So if you're not a Christian yet here this morning, so the reason you're here is partly because you're seeking God, but even more because he's seeking you. So this is the character that God has revealed to us in his word about himself. He is like a shepherd who goes out to seek lost sheep. And if you're not a Christian yet, you're here because God is seeking you. He is always at work in the world without any rest, just seeking people and calling them to himself because God is good and he is kind and he is passionate about extending his kingdom. So secondly, faith is submitting, believing what God has said about himself, about his character, not doubting him when things get difficult. Thirdly, faith is believing that God is for us, for us in the sense that he loves us with an everlasting love that he is merciful and gracious and that he delights to forgive us. God has bound himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ who came and shared our life in all its brokenness and its joys and then who died on the cross bearing all of our burdens, all of our failures, all of the wretched mistakes we've made in our lives our deepest and ugliest places. Your Christ died for those to make us acceptable to God. So faith, as Francis Schaeffer used to say, is coming to God, coming to Jesus with empty hands and saying, Lord, I can't offer you righteousness. 
even poor righteousness. I have done nothing to merit your love. I am absolutely dependent upon what Jesus has done for me. You know, we sang about coming to God with some with empty hands, some with full hands. Well, yes, we all come with different gifts and different amounts of money and skills and so on, but in the end, we actually all come to God with empty hands. You know, the, a teacher came to Jesus one day and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he just didn't get it. There is nothing that we can do to inherit eternal life. God has done it for us by sending Christ. So we come to the Lord with empty hands, trusting him, trusting Jesus to do what I could never do for myself. Well, as Paul said, after one of those songs we sang, it's just beautiful. You know, Jesus lived a life I couldn't live, a righteous life. Jesus died the death. I couldn't die for myself to bear my sins, and he rose again for my justification. This was the very heart of the Reformation, justification through faith alone, in Christ alone. So that's the third and central element of faith, coming to the Lord every day of our lives with empty hands. The fourth is that faith is always future-oriented. At the end of the passage you read, at the beginning of chapter 12, it says, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus endured the cross, <coughs> despising the shame, and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of God on high. You know, Jesus was looking to the future and trusting his heavenly Father and looking forward to the joy of saving you and saving me, of knowing you and knowing me. That's a wonderful thing. That's why Jesus died, because he wanted to have the joy of having fellowship with us forever. So our faith is to be future-oriented. It's to be looking forward to what God has for us. Now, in the very heart of Hebrews chapter 11 that was read so wonderfully for us, that great long passage, in verses 13 through 16, it says this, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You know, I love St. Louis. Now, I love visiting Nashville. I've been here a dozen times, I suppose. But that's not my eternal city. You know, God has prepared for us all a city. You know, I love England from where I come. You can still hear it a bit in my accent. But I love the United States. This is my home, and I'm in the process of becoming a citizen. But my eternal citizenship isn't in either of those countries. It's in the heavenly country that God has prepared for us, which will endure forever. So I'm a, I want to be a citizen here, but my citizenship, the most important citizenship, citizenship is citizenship in God's kingdom. And that's what Hebrews 11 is all about. 
And if we have this view that we are looking to God and looking to his kingdom and to his city and to his country, if we're living for that future, you know, this text says something so beautiful, one of the most beautiful statements in the whole of the Bible, God is not ashamed to be called their God. If your trust is in Jesus and your hope is in the kingdom that God has prepared, the place he's prepared for us. God isn't ashamed of you. In fact, he, he loves you. He delights in you. He rejoices over you. He's not ashamed of me. He's not ashamed of you. It doesn't matter what you've done, what terrible things. God is proud of you. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing. So God calls us to live in faith, looking to this eternal future. But he also calls us to live in faith for right now, to believe that he is going to care for us through all the challenges that come to our life and through all the joys, through the happy times and through the tough times. You know, the Lord has promised that he will never leave us or forsake us, but he will come and help us whatever we endure. Think of my sister-in-law, Melody and how God cared for her right through that terrible experience of Lou Gehrig's disease. You know, the Lord was with her till the very end, till she breathed her last and went to be with him. And the Lord promises that to us, that Jesus will never fail us or forsake us. And every day we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. This is the Lord that we are to trust in, that we are to believe in today and every day. Amen. Would you pray with me, please?